Plundergrounds, Plundergrounds, welcome back to a brand new show. Ray's gonna take you where you didn't know you wanted to go. Fantasy and dungeon delve, science fiction, watch yourselves. Hey everybody, welcome back to another Plundergrounds. Today I am going to talk about two big topics. Um, the first one driven by a lengthy but very interesting call-in uh, regarding Malazan Book of the Fallen, which is a series of books by Stephen Erickson. And uh, this calling comes from James Knight from the UK. And James and I had a subsequent discussion on Discord. And I kind of made it a, a distinction about genre fiction, um, about fantasy genre fiction, and how I didn't find that high versus low was a very useful distinction, but I did tend to divide. Um, uh, fantasy fiction along the lines of whether the world building was top down or bottom up. And I'll talk about that after his call in. So then I'm going to segue. I didn't think I was going to talk about RPG a day this month um, for the prompts, but it looks like the first week of prompts are all kind of about that first game experience. And so I have a couple thoughts on the first game experience that, believe it or not, actually kind of tie into the, the conversation we have about fiction here. So let's get going with this call in and then I'll be back on the other side. Hey, Ray, I hope this finds you well. This is James Macron from London in the UK. First time, long time, all of that. Um, I was just calling to respond to uh, a call in from Joe Richter in, from episode 335 uh, uh, regarding Joe's mentioning of Gardens of the Moon, the first book from the Malazan Book of the Fallen by Stephen Erickson. Um, and I was calling to kind of uh, back up Joe in saying that A, that is an awesome fight scene, uh, and B, the series itself is also maybe worth a second look for people who have not invested in modern fantasy. Uh, broadly speaking, I am one of those people. Uh, I read a lot of fantasy as a kid. I read Tolkien, a lot of David Eddings, David Gemmell, uh, basically anything that was available in my local public library, a lot of Terry Pratchett as well. Um, but from my early teens onwards, I gravitated towards sci-fi, very similar to the kind of path that you yourself mentioned. Uh, and I have continued reading sci-fi really ever since then, going all the way back to the, the classics, the Clarks, the Heinleins, uh, you know, more obscure writers like R.A. Lafferty, the gamut, really. Uh, and, I, and I'd really not read much fantasy, uh, modern fantasy, contemporary fantasy, uh, until about five years ago. Uh, and I was listening to a science fiction book review podcast called The Science Fiction Book Review Podcast. Uh, which you may be familiar with, I'm not sure. Uh, a guy called Luke Burridge uh, produces it, mainly with his uh, partner these days, Juliana. And I, I certainly don't agree with uh, all of Luke's takes, um, but a lot of sci-fi podcasts tend to be reading short fiction, I found. And I, I've struggled to find but kind of review podcasts or discussions of either novels or series or author's work uh, and the Science Fiction Book Review podcast is one of those. Um, Luke is a professional juggler <laughs> in his spare time. It's kind of funny combo, sci-fi and juggling. Um, and he's pretty militant about only reviewing sci-fi books, but occasionally he will review a fantasy book. And a long time ago now, and I think the, the, the podcast has been running for about 10 years, I think, but maybe about five years ago, uh, he 
reviewed the first Malazan Book of the Fallen. And I listened to the review and I was kind of interested and I read it and I loved it. And I was very surprised how much I enjoyed it. And at that point, I think almost all of the series was out by then. There's the, the main series is 10 uh, quite large books. Um, I can't remember. Anyway, I, I kind of read it, read the first one, kept going. And I think, but I think maybe the final one wasn't out. I think that came out relatively recently. It took me a while because I, I read sci-fi and fantasy in amongst the other books, non-fiction mainly. Um, but as I was reading the books, I also uh, sought out interviews with Ericsson. And what is interesting and relevant for the perspective of this podcast <laughs> is that Ericsson and his co-author in the series, Ian C. Esselmont, are both gamers. And the entire world of the Malazan Book of the Fallen is essentially an elaborated uh, set of notes from their long-running campaigns. Uh, maybe Joe Richter knows this. I believe that it was a very long-running GURPS campaign that they ran. And they are both also archaeologists. So they bring uh, a very informed view of history as well as a gamer sensibility to the novels. And they are really up there with any genre fiction that I've read. Uh, I've read the main uh, series of 10 books and also E.N.C. Esselmont's kind of sub-series. And they really are fantastic. And as well as coming from a gaming background, uh, Ericsson is very outspokenly from the sword and sorcery tradition. Uh, he counterposes his work to the kind of Tolkien-esque high fantasy tradition. So I really think there's a lot in there, in the Malazan Book of the Fallen, that may be of interest to both you and uh, other other gamers. Um, so I just wanted to kind of big up the Malazan Book of the Fallen and kind of co-sign Joe's call. Um, I think Joe's mentioned it, uh, the Malazan Book of the Fallen, previously uh, on other podcasts or maybe on his own, I can't remember. Um, so he could probably fill in some gaps that I've left out there. Uh, but it's just a shout from me. And if anyone does uh, want to start reading it, I can also recommend there is a, a another podcast <laughs> called 10 Very Big Books where they are reading through. And they're, I think they're on the seventh or eighth book. Um, but it's a really good crew of people on that podcast. I, I've reread the series along with them uh, and I can recommend it because uh, it can be, be quite daunting because uh, it's large and it's complex, nuanced. And another thing that I just remembered from the same episode that Joe called into was you mentioned Empire of the Petal Throne. And I've never played Empire of the Petal Throne. And due to uh, what you mentioned in terms of uh, M.A.R. Barker's uh, personal views, I don't think I now <laughs> ever will, which is a shame because I was quite interested to explore that. But one thing you mentioned was that he really drops you into that world uh, with very little hand-holding. And the first book, Guns of the Moon, of the Malazan Book of the Fallen, is very much the same. You're really dropped straight in there. And Ericsson really has a lot of faith in his readers to keep up. And what I think is quite interesting is that as a gamer, if you are someone who's used to rolling up a character and joining an established campaign, or maybe rolling up a character and jumping into a West Marches-style campaign, you're quite used to your character being dropped in media res into action and through play, you can discover more about the world. So I think maybe non-gamers who come to the Malazan Book of the Fallen 
and begin with Guardians of the Moon, they can get lost quite quickly. Whereas if you're a gamer, I think that stands you in good stead to kind of run with the action. And I think it is in contradistinction to a lot of uh, modern fantasy, the Sanderson, Jordan style, which I've not read any of that, so I feel bad kind of, uh, you know, naming and shaming it, but I'm led to believe at least that there's a lot of exposition there, uh, a lot of kind of hand-holding in terms of plot, and the Book of the Fallen does not do that. Um, uh, I think that's about it. Keep up all the great work, and au revoir from London. Yeah, James, thank you a lot for that call in and for the conversation we had afterwards. The distinction I came up with, and it's funny because sometimes I don't know what I think until I hear myself say it. And I think this was one of those um, where James had started off, had said, yeah, it's kind of nuts how developed the world is, but I mentioned it in my message. As I mentioned it in my message, it's definitely not, quote unquote, high fantasy. And then he went on to say, maybe it's epic low fantasy. And uh, and then kind of laughed. And I and I said, yeah, high is a problematic term for sure. I, I'd say there is fantasy that is concerned with world building from the top down, which is global, thorough, past and present, methodic. And there is fantasy concerned with world building from the bottom up, which is inside out, incidental, on the fly, always in context. And for me, that distinction accounts for a lot of what qualifies as high versus low, uh, more so than grittiness of tone or how polarized the morality of the world is. I mean, a lot of people use high and low to equate to some kind of like um, high high fantasy has black and white morals and low fantasy has sort of gray morals, right? That's one of the distinctions people make there. And first of all, I'm just gonna say all these generalizations they don't stick, right? Like <laughs> they are generalizations. They're not going to be true of every piece of fantasy. This is observations that people made about like most uh, high fantasy is where most low fantasy is this way. And they're not always valid. But um, I went on to say anytime that you need a map to read the fiction, I think you're dealing with top-down fantasy. Meaning um, if it's if it has so many proper nouns and is so twisty and turny and confusing that to keep everything straight, you need uh, the genealogy tree and a map and some other stuff to kind of like if you have to take notes. I, I feel like that's top down fantasy. Um, most of the old sword and sorcery stuff, by comparison, uh, ends up having maps. For example, Nuhan uh, from the Lankmar series, but you never really need the maps to read the fiction. And the maps weren't there from the start. They're just something that came later. Now, as an example of things that um, don't fit into one or the other, I honestly think while most people consider Tolkien top-down world building, and I would too for the most part, um, I think that happened organically. So if you read the 1937 version of The Hobbit, I, that is not top-down world building. It is bottom-up world building. And he didn't have everything already worked out. But in the decades between that and Lord of the Rings and subsequently moving into like the Cimmerian, he had so much that worked out that you're, you are, it becomes to the point where you're better off having uh, the map at hand and or um, some genealogies or taking a few notes as to who's what uh, to really get you know, a full understanding of the fiction. Now, I would argue you can still read Lord of the Rings without caring about who the Witch King of Angmar was or 
uh, the lineage of Isildur or whatever. Um, <laughs> I mean, some of that comes into play, but you get as much of it as you need just from reading the fiction. You actually don't have to resort to the maps and such. You won't get lost, I don't think. But I haven't read it for the first time since I was, you know, read it for the first time since I was like in sixth grade or something. <laughs> so so I can't say that with certainty because it's been too far back for me um, about how much I missed that first read through. I know I enjoyed it the first three read through and I don't, I think, I know I had seen the map because I had seen like a poster of it on my friend's wall. And it's, of course, in the front of the book. So I guess I, I guess that helped provide context. But I don't remember, like, pouring over place names and things um, or, like, tracking the fiction alongside the map. I just kind of got a general sense of the world from the map or that there was a larger world. I, even having said all that, I would still quantify Tiction. I would still quantify Tolkien's fiction as top-down. Um, but I do believe that it it, it isn't, like, just hundred percent top down, right? Like it's, it is a continuum here. It's not just all one thing or all another. Um, but Elric is for instance, certainly bottom up fiction, right? Like you don't need the map of Elric's world that comes later. And, uh, the details you get are a little bit fluid anyway. Um, and the stories are written out of timeline order and you're supposed to just to experience the story. It's not about, um, all the off screen, um, history of the world, that, that matters. And so for me, a lot of post eighties fiction is, is top down in a way that bothers me in a way that uh, I have to do research to keep up with the novel. And I think Malazan probably still fits in that top down, uh, approach to world building. But as I understand it, uh, I, I don't know, I haven't read it yet. And James says, it's definitely not, uh, that he, he thinks of it as bottom up. And I, I, that's interesting. I'll, I'll know when I read it, I guess. <laughs> so who am I to say? Uh, I just noticed that the, the world is so detailed in the maps and things that it, it seems a bit daunting to get into. It's hard to kind of jump into it. And um, yeah, so I'm curious to see in what way it's bottom up. Maybe it's more like low fantasy in tone too, uh, as I understand. That's the impression I get anyway. Well, um, I'll, I'll give one more example, and then I want to kind of segue into this idea of how hard it is to jump into something like this and uh, to something that's top down, right? And how that is related to first time RPG experiences. But another example of bottom up world building, uh, some friends of mine had never read the Chronicles of Amber and I talked them into reading the Chronicles of Amber and that book has, uh, pretty global perspective in a lot of ways. It's not even just one world, it's multiple worlds, but they're overlaid dimensions, if you will. I'm not going to get into it too much, but it's definitely a bottom-up approach because you start with one character who has partial amnesia, and uh, which is an old gimmick, but it works, right? As a way of revealing the world slowly, and you just get uh, more and more of the world Actually, throughout the first five books, you get more and more of the world until really in the fifth book, you're still learning things about the world, um, about fundamental things of the world, not just new places, but literally how magic works and how um, how the cosmos is structured and those kind of things all are still happening in book five. Uh, it just takes a while to get all that out, even though it's not really all that complex in the end. There's a four or five big ideas in this world that get introduced. And, um, it's a really cool world. It has to do with, uh, 
the themes are like law versus chaos and uh, magic that's tied to um, ritual isn't the right word, but patterns and, and uh, it's almost like Kabbalah magic, right? Uh, it's tied to like cards and, and patterns and symbols. And um, let's see, the other, another theme would be like alternate realities, um, all possible realities. And uh, then finally, I'd say if there's one other theme, to point out to point to in the book, it's the politics of a royal family, right? And um, all those things kind of get revealed and explained as you go through the books. And I don't think I spoiled anything by saying that those are the themes of the books. You'll you'll get those right away. Uh, that kind of stuff tends to come up pretty early. Okay, so um, James made the point that um, fiction that is top down, especially, or just fiction that is has bottom up but has gone on so long that now it's top down right like this is what i think that happened probably to malazan and certainly happened to tolkien and some others like the more and more you add books the more the world becomes defined and that harder it is for people to jump into it not only because they come to the shelf and they see that there's 30 books in the series already or even seven or eight or whatever like dresden files now has 20 some books right um and, and Dresden Files is another bottom-up approach, by the way, just to give an example. But uh, it, it becomes harder and harder to approach these things as an outsider because you get daunted. You think, gosh, how much do I have to learn to get into the series? But another perspective, I mean, that's the negative perspective. Another positive one is to go, oh, my gosh, if I invest in this series, look how many hours and years of enjoyment that I'll have out of it. Like, I'm not going to invest and learn a bunch of stuff just for the sake of one book. Right. So if I really like this thing, it's kind of comforting to know that there's lots, lots and lots more of it. Um, I don't know. I don't know which is better. Sometimes I, I think when I was a kid, I would have kid when I was younger in my teen years, I would have gloried in the idea that there's like 30 books in a series. Um, as an adult, I am leery of things that have too many books because I'm afraid that if I do like it, they're going to mess it up. Uh, somewhere along the line, or I look at it as like, my gosh, I'll never finish this. Do I have time to read? Um, you know, and so that's a, a youth versus old man look at things, I think. Uh, and it's making me keenly aware that maybe I should be younger, right? That I should tackle Malazan as if I still have a um, hundred years left on this earth. And <laughs> And I'm looking for something to dedicate a good portion of my life to, as opposed to have already been everywhere and seen everything or somebody who is stingy with their time because their time is so important that they don't want to waste it on quote unquote bad fiction or get invested in something that's going to hurt them. Right. That's, that's the perspective. It's kind of like a relationship thing. People, um, as you get older and older, it becomes harder to like commit to people because what if you get burned a bunch, you know, <laughs> it's harder to open yourself up to people. Um, but when you're a kid, you don't care about stuff like that. You wear everything, you know, wear your heart on your sleeve and you, uh, I don't know, maybe that's not true, but there's some truth in it. There's some universalities there. Uh, but moving on. I, I, so how does this relate to first time experiences? Well, it, so we had a session Monday night game session. We're coming back to a world that's a shared world. Um, called Agarda City of Runes. And it's our it's a campaign that I started, but that all of us in the group, not all of us, but all the GMs in the group who regularly GM have GM'd this world at some point. And we've all added to it. 
And uh, but there was a core group of us, of three of us, four of us, who four, yeah, four of us can't count in my head. A core group of four of us, three players, one GM is what I was thinking. I think um, who played it every Sunday like clockwork through COVID, and so we developed a lot of world. Well, we've got one of our other group who's joining us now. And this isn't his first time in the world, but he doesn't know that. Like I had a campaign that I ran a couple weeks ago that was t- took place in another city in the world. And, uh, but this time we're going back to Agarda, which is the main city of the world. And there was a temptation during the session last night for people to keep recounting things that would, that had happened already. And I kind of reminded everybody, I said, look, Dave's not gonna, he doesn't have these memories. Like let's, be careful and reveal things only in the fiction as they matter because he'll get overloaded. I feel like there's a quiz or something, you know, that he should have to know these things. And when in fact his character wouldn't know hardly any of this, right? Um, All all they need is the just very quick hits of like, what's this world about before they get into it. Uh, They don't need to know the past history of the party and shouldn't know the past history of the party. And so I'd say that's one tip about the first time experience. Uh, I've got more to say on that, but I need to pause the recording here because it keeps cutting out every five minutes on me. Uh, Tip, if you use Anchor, do not use it on Safari because it will only record for five minutes at a time. And it will often surprise you by cutting you off when you least expect it. (laughs) So apparently uh, this month's prompts for RPG, RPG a day are questions and uh, they used to be just one word prompts like anchor or begin or quest or something like that right and you just interpret that word however you wanted to but this year the the person who organizes it has gone with questions and i only know this because i listened to my friend jason connerly's podcast uh, jason's R- uh, rpg nerd variety podcast i think i got that name wrong but i'm gonna <laughs> i'll link it in the show notes so you'll find it um and he was reading off the questions. So I heard the questions and I'm just going to respond to them generally. Uh, the questions were a lot about um, like if you were going to introduce a, a players to a game for the first time, what system would you choose? Where would you play? That kind of stuff. And I'm just going to make some comments about being an evangelist for role-playing games. Uh, I think the number one thing you can do is that you can play a lot and you can talk about playing a lot. Like (laughs) if you are excited to play and you play and you talk about the fun that you had playing, people will gravitate toward your enthusiasm, towards your fun and see that, you you know, people want to have fun, right? And so if they see that you're having fun, then they're much more likely to try to, to be motivated to get in on the fun. And uh, that's the number one thing you can do is just be excited about it, right? Um, To just don't set out to like convert people, uh, just set out to have a good time and then don't be closeted about your good time. Talk about it with other people. Talk about what you like about the game, um, about the, you know, about role playing in general and, and just develop some enthusiasm. The game is still best spread friend to friend and by word of mouth and experience rather than reading, right? So yes, you can you can buy a starter box for somebody and hand it to them. And that's a good way, uh, you know, that is a good thing to do, let me put it that way. But is that the best way for them to get into the game? I don't know. I mean, I don't think so. I think most of us got into the game by, by being invited to somebody's table. 
right? And uh, just figuring it out. But some of us got in, like, uh, you know, some of us got in by just buying it and reading through it, figuring out and being that catalyst that introduces our other friends to the game. So, you know, I'm just saying uh, that that was my first thought. My, uh, But if I were to be thinking specifically about trying to introduce people to a game, especially people I didn't know, right, um, strangers, then I would pick a, a very basic system, uh, probably something like Shadow Dark, um, which is still in development, but I got picked up some zines of it at Gary Khan and they were, it's by Kelsey Dion and it's a, a really stripped down, very cool, very lightweight version of fifth edition. Um, I think OSC would be great, uh, with ascending armor class and, uh, or any kind of stripped down, excuse me, kind of hiccup burp there on the mic. That was really rude. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think OS, OSC would still be good with ascending armor class or any kind of boiled down like black hack or some of those would, would all be good. Fifth edition only if somebody comes to you and says, I want to learn how to play fifth edition D and D right. Like I've listened to critical role and I want to play D and D. Okay. Well then start them on fifth edition. My son, Max uh, just recently ran my gaming group through what amounts to a fifth edition funnel. Um, he stripped everything down to zero level characters he basically used the standard array and took one point off the standard array across the board, randomly generated tables in an inn. Um, and each table had usually like one weird race character, like Tabaxi or, or something like that. But most of the rest were core. And uh, you picked a tape, each player at the game picked a table of characters and you ran those out of this scenario, which was kind of a meat grinder and you didn't have any class abilities or anything like that. So uh, it was, it was really fun and it was a good way to maybe introduce the basics of the system. Right. Um, but that took a lot of work on his part, a lot of work. And I've actually, um, in the, in the mode maybe where I'm thinking about helping him put that together as something that, you know, can share with other people. Cause it's, I think worth sharing, but that's not how I'd tackle it unless I had to teach fifth edition. Uh, and then in which case I might do that. Uh, all right. So some other thoughts, play in a public space if you can. Um, unless they know you, I wouldn't invite them into your home. It's very uncomfortable to go into somebody's home that you don't know. Um, it's better to play someplace, you know, a library or, or someplace that, uh, a restaurant with a kind of quiet table in the corner or something like that. There's kind of an inherent power situation there. Um, I used to, I learned this when I was teaching, uh, college and uh, I had this little office and students had to come up a couple floors to get to it. And if they came in, you know, there's me and my desk and my wall of books and there's them and me and my books and my position and my entitlement and everything, uh, my privilege <laughs> in that conversation, it wasn't an equal conversation, right? They, they were outgunned in that conversation. So I very quickly learned to try to set meetings with students in groups if I could, of, you know, two or three, um, and to have them in the library at a table just alongside other students so that it, we were just two people meeting in the library. Um, for one thing, there's a safety factor there in terms of what people can say happened. Uh, if you're in private, it's a he said, she said kind of thing, and, and people can uh, fake allegations. And I, I've experienced this, honestly, it's a whole long story, but, um, 
yeah, I had a student who was who basically failed out. Uh, they didn't even get a chance to fail out. They, they they left after like the second week of school and never came back. But then when they got an F at the they never withdrew. And when they got an F at the end of the semester, they went to HR and claimed a bunch of stuff had happened. And it was fairly easily proved that none of it had happened. But it was a very scary situation for me, and that was part of how I learned to like you know, to, to be in a space where other people can see you, which takes away the, the problem, right? It takes, it takes away a lot of the problem. Uh, and somebody says that you met in your office, you can say, no, I never meet in my office with students. And I make that a policy. Um, so it doesn't, doesn't totally fix the problem, I guess, but it, it does it, in the end, you can't, you can't do everything out of mistrust of other people. That was not the point I was trying to make. It just, I, that's how I learned to do what I did. But in the end, I think it was better for the students because they didn't feel unempowered in that situation. Right. They felt empowered to kind of just treat me like another person. Uh, for the most part, of course, it, I still had my title and everything. So it's, you can't really level the playing field, but, um, as a GM, you know, or as somebody already knows the game, uh, you can think about the hurdles that this player's facing there. They are somebody who doesn't know the game, somebody who is, doesn't know the social context or like how to play, meaning whether it's not, um, there's how to play the system. And then there's how to like, just be a, a functioning part of a role-playing game table, like how you take turns and, um, you don't want to pause too long when you're trying to figure out what to do and you just feel awkward, right? And you don't know what you can do or what you shouldn't do or all these things. And they're dealing with all of that. And you're there, um, with all the good intentions of the world, but they don't necessarily know that trying to make sure they have a good time. And you just got to extend yourself some and have some empathy, right. And kind of see things from their perspective. And so again, playing in a public space, I think is important. I think gearing it towards one shot, even if it's a system that you're going to play or have played like uh, on an ongoing campaign, kind of think of that, that one session as a one shot, maybe with a cliffhanger, you know, if you really want to try to lure them back again, but I think you want to give them a complete experience. Um, you want to focus on, uh, some easy wins. You want some easy wins in there, right? Because they're learning the system. And so, uh, to put them under the, uh, you know, in, in, under the screws while they're also trying to learn things is a little bit tough. You want, you want some things where if they, if they develop a basic understanding quickly of the rules, they're going to triumph. So I'd say some simple puzzles. Uh, I want some encounters that are not necessarily combats, right. That could easily devolve into combat, but, um, could also be curtailed or sidestepped by, uh, by somebody who is driven to engage in more social play and, uh, try to bargain their way out. You know, if they want to play a wily trickster figure and they want to kind of cheat or bargain their way out of a situation, that should be an option. Um, even though the more logical outcome might be a combat, don't just like go from fight to fight and assume the fight. You know, I'm bad about this sometimes where, you know, I, I, um, it depends on the table, right? I got it. Uh, one of my tables right now is very much like they don't ask a lot of questions. They don't investigate and they just kind of walk into situations. And I always feel a little guilty when I say, well, roll initiative, but it's, it's, uh, they don't attempt to like, you know, parley or, or bargain or anything like that. They just, there's usually a little bit of a standoff of verbiage and a little bit of shouting and kind of like uh, posturing. And then next thing you know, somebody's throwing down. Well, that is what it is. That's the group. That's that maybe that's not me. Maybe it is me. Maybe I should try to figure out ways what they can't, you know, things that they can't beat with combat and they have to figure out a way to beat it otherwise. Um, and I do have something planned like that for the next session. But my point is for a first session, don't just make it like a series of combat. 
one thing you can do is start in the middle of a combat, right? Start in media race and just, um, you know, say you're, you know, five goblins jump on you. Uh, you're, you're walking through an alley and five goblins jump on your group, uh, from the rooftops, uh, you know, and then you, you walk through the combat and then afterwards you talk about why were you in the alley and, and, uh, what were the goblins after? And, you know, you try to make some of that apparent through the combat. Like maybe the goblins are trying to snatch something from you as they're fighting. Uh, and then that becomes the, the op you have to learn, like, why am I carrying that? And what's going on here? And, you know, that can be a really fun way to, to get into the world. Uh, if you want to start with combat, but you know, it shouldn't all be about combat. So that's, that's really, and, you know, look, look at, in terms of one shot, looking at something that is kind of complete fictionally makes sense, uh, by itself. Um, and even that's refreshing for people who have been playing for a long time. And if you're just kind of like session after session, working on some really long arc, it's nice once in a while to have a session that kind of stands alone, right. That you can look back on. I, t I tend to find those sometimes uh, form stronger memories. Uh, cause people say, Oh, you remember that one time we did X. Um, often those are big moments in a campaign or like one shots versus, or maybe, you know, one, two, three session kind of things. They're more focused arcs and being more focused like that will help produce, um, not only a good experience for the first timer, but, uh, something a little different maybe for your group that's on in an ongoing thing, uh, and just kind of pushing the, the football, you know, forward from yardage to yardage. <laughs> so yeah. Um, that's all I had to say about first time game experiences. Um, you know, be a good human being, be kind to people, show some empathy, um, show some excitement, play things you care about, play with people you care about, care about people you play with. Uh, that's, that's all I can say. Well, that's not all I can say. I can say, look out for those rust monsters. <laughs>